irony. The opposite of what is expected to happen. Paul writes of an ironic and quite difficult situation at the end of Romans 9 when he says that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching, in reaching that law. And further, and in contrast, he says the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, they have attained a righteousness that is by faith. He goes on to say that Israel has a zeal for God, but is ignorant of the righteousness of God because they seek to establish their own righteousness. And they seek this as if it were based on works rather than pursuing it by faith. Do you hear the irony? Something tragic has happened to Israel that is the exact opposite of the intended result. They possess the law of our creator. And Israel believed that by pursuing their own righteousness through the law, they would reach or obtain the righteousness of God. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Here they're handed a moral code, rules to live by, written by the very finger of God. If only they could do these things, if only they could live this way, differentiating themselves from their pagan neighbors, conducting, them, conducting themselves entirely different from their heathen surrounding nations. Surely by following these rules, they would find themselves forever as part of God's family. And yet somehow along the way, they missed the very thing that they were after. And perhaps even more ironic, as if Israel's wasn't enough, Paul writes that the Gentiles found the very thing that Israel was pursuing, and they found it via an entirely separate way from the law. They found it by faith. Do you hear the tragedy in these words? Do you feel the irony? As we gathered in this very room several weeks ago, hearing this passage preached in Romans 9, my heart was gripped with these questions. Am I pursuing a righteousness as if it were based on works? Am I seeking to establish my own righteousness? My prayer for us this morning is that God's word would be a help, a help in both our understanding of the gospel and in convicting us of ways that we might be, just like Israel, pursuing a righteousness as though it were based on works rather than trusting in Christ, who, Paul writes in Romans, is the end of the law for righteousness to each one of us who believes. After both Todd and Kip chose Romans 9 during this three-week thematic break from our exposition through Romans, Todd mentioned last week that he wasn't sure if we fell into the category of great minds think alike or lemmings following one another over a cliff. And I never heard a conclusive response after last week, so I'm not sure if I stand up here as a third great mind or merely another lemming about to plunge over a cliff. But we're actually not going to spend a whole lot of time in Romans 9 this morning. 
we're actually going to use it as a springboard into Galatians 3, where a very similar theme is picked up by Paul. I'll also tell you up front, we're going to look at Galatians 3 in a manner very different than we're used to when we're going through a series, section by section. My aim today is to give us a a flyover of what's going on, not only in the book of Galatians, but in chapter 3, and help us connect it back with this theme we're talking about at the end of Romans 9. So a bit of context to Galatians 3, the churches in Galatia found themselves falling prey to the influence of the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were individuals who, while they acknowledged the work of Christ on the cross, and they acknowledged the grace that was extended there, they held to the belief that the law of Moses must still be adhered to, particularly circumcision. Theirs was a grace plus works theology. You must have both to be saved. And Paul had spent some time with these churches, and he saw the work of the Spirit in their midst. And so he's understandably quite angry as he's hearing what's happened to his beloved believers in Galatia, hearing about the influence of the Judaizers. And so Paul begins Galatians coming out of the gates charging. He is astonished at how quickly they have deserted the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The belief system that they were facing, this wasn't merely a different shade of the same color. This was a distortion and a contradiction to the true gospel. And Paul writes that he wishes these influencers would be accursed. He then spends some time reminding the churches of his background and the source of the gospel that he's been given. He reminds them how he himself was an exemplary and honorary religious person, as we might say it today. He was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And yet, despite this road that he was on, Paul recounts to them the revelation of Jesus Christ that he was given and the message of grace. He goes on to discuss that this message, this gospel, is not easily trusted and always easily followed, as was evidenced by even Peter himself and many of the the Jewish believers in Galatia, and the, the hypocrisy that they showed towards the Jews around them. And so Paul reminds them that justification is not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And he writes that by works of the law, no one will be justified. And at this point, he pens perhaps one of the most quoted sections of Galatians when he writes that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. The love of Christ and the giving of himself through his death enable us to die to ourselves to stop living in our own strength and to put our faith and our trust in Jesus, the Son of God. So with that ever so brief summary of the first two chapters of Galatians, we're now going to land in chapter 3. 
want to pause for a moment and give our time to the Lord, and then we're going to read through the first 22 verses of chapter 3. Father, you are our salvation. And what a joy it has been this morning to to sing those words and see seven lives and the work you've done in them. So we thank you for baptism. We thank you for the washing that you give us in Christ. Father, I pray that as we read Galatians 3 and we spend time in your word this morning that you would open our eyes that you would give us hearts of faith, that we would repent of our works, we would repent of our trying to achieve salvation through the law. And I pray that each one of us here this morning would leave here evermore praising your glorious gospel and the work of your Son. That's in his name we pray. Amen. You'll notice in your bulletin, created a simple outline this morning asking four questions. Three from the text and one closing question that we'll spend some time on in reflection and application. Let's read Galatians 3, the first 22 verses. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, 
does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so reads the word of the Lord. Paul, you can hear, picks up his harsh and direct tone by calling these Galatians foolish. And he asks, who's bewitched you? They're without understanding as though someone was cast under a spell. And Paul points to their own experience as the first evidence of their foolishness. Their very eyes saw the message of Jesus Christ crucified. The word publicly publicly portrayed, prographo, means literally to write before. This was a term used to refer to a public sign or proclamation. So Paul's not saying that these Galatians actually watched Christ be crucified on the cross, but rather that the message of him crucified was delivered directly to them. They heard the gospel. And he asked them a series of rhetorical questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, who works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And we can almost hear the Galatians' sheepish responses to these questions. And in the answers, the irony of their and likely our own actions are exposed. These Galatians were born-again believers. They had received the Spirit through ears of faith. They had begun this new life trusting in the work of Christ and His Spirit. They had endured hardships and suffered many things for the gospel. They had experienced miracles among them. And yet, despite all of this, they were prone to believing a different gospel. They were believing a gospel that says the Spirit is received through obedience, that we are perfected or completed, at least in part, through our own efforts, and that the work of the Spirit comes through adherence to the law. I picture the Galatians reading this letter and responding like a child who's just been shown the folly of his actions and knows exactly what the answers are to his father's questions. How foolish. And notice, notice to whom Paul connects the idea of hearing with faith. Abraham. Likely the very one to whom, or not likely, the one to whom the call to circumcision was given. 
and likely the one that the Judaizers were pointing to, saying, to be a son of Abraham, you've got to be circumcised. Paul says here that even Abraham's righteousness was credited to him due to his belief or his faith. And so Galatian Christians, you're not sons of Abraham because you obey the law and because you're circumcised, Paul's saying. You're a son of Abraham because of your faith. The power of Paul's rhetorical questions lies in their clear answers. And I believe that we need to hear them ourselves. For those of us who have trusted Christ, we can answer these questions like this. We have received the Spirit by hearing with faith. We started in the power of the Spirit and we'll finish in the power of the Spirit. We have not persevered in this life and suffered many things in vain. And we have not seen God at work in our lives and amongst us due to our own obedience and observance of the law. Paul now moves on to defend the gospel with arguments from Scripture. And he stays on the theme of Abraham's lineage, the very man the Jews pointed to as the father of of their faith, and rightfully so. Paul says it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And here he goes back to Genesis 12, saying that this very same gospel that he's preaching is the one that was preached to Abraham. This isn't a new gospel. When God promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed in you, God was giving the promise that men women and children from all kinds of peoples, all nations, would, like Abraham, have faith in the promise of God and by that faith, like Abraham, be blessed. We'll return to this promise to Abraham momentarily, but for now, now, Paul is stressing that it is those who follow the man of faith, Abraham, who are blessed along with him. The alternative to faith is reliance on works of the law. And Paul moves on to quote, of all places, the law itself. When he writes from Deuteronomy, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And also from Habakkuk, who said the righteous shall live by faith. Paul cuts to the point. The law itself states that the one who can't keep it all is under a curse. And the righteous one does not live by rule following. The righteous one does not live by obedience. The righteous lives by faith. But hear the good news. According to the law, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In ancient Israel, it was common practice after the lawbreaker, the law violator, was executed to be put up on a pole or a tree as a sign of God's curse, as a sign of the judgment and wrath of God poured out on that individual for their lawbreaking. And the good news is that Christ, the perfect law abider, the sinless one, Paul says, redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. 
As Christ hung there on the cross, on that tree, he was the one rejected by God. He was the one under the curse of the law so that all who trust in his work on their behalf will never face the rejection of God. And so Paul concludes, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We could put it this way. Christ, who perfectly followed the law, took on the curse for the ones who broke the law so that by putting our faith in him, we might receive the promises of God just like our father, Abraham. Paul returns to Genesis now, citing God's words to Abraham in chapter 15. And here he uncovers a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding in the promise to Abraham. Paul writes that when the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, meaning this wasn't a biological promise. This wasn't a promise that all the physical descendants of Abraham would be blessed with Abraham. But, Paul says, referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the promise given to Father Abraham, the childless man, that he would become a great nation through whom all the nations would be blessed, this was a promise that there would be a son from the line of Abraham, a son that in whom all who believe from any nation will be saved. This was the promise. And the law? The law came 430 years later. 430 years after the promise given to Abraham. And so Paul rightly sums up, if the inheritance, if the promise comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The inheritance, the blessing, cannot be both from law and promise. They are mutually exclusive. At this point, you're asking, well, what was the law for? You're either very familiar with Galatians 3, you're very familiar with the bulletin outline, or you're tracking with Paul. One helpful translation renders verse 19. It, the law, was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. In essence, the law was given to show us our sin and our very need for the promised one. The law rightly understood, must drive us to the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's getting at in verses 21 and 22. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. It was not given in order to impart life. If it was, then righteousness would be by the law. But instead, it was given to imprison everything under sin so that 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. One commentator helpfully observed, rightly understood then, the law prevents any attempt on man's part to secure righteousness before God in any other way than that promise to Abraham. There is no essential contradiction of the promise by the law because, simply, the law is intended to serve the purpose of the promise, which has to do with justification by faith. So, brothers and sisters, I confess to you that I have been gripped by the gospel recently. I've been convicted of my own tendency towards, like the Galatians, being perfected by the flesh relying on works, the things that I do to define my identity, to drive how I'm feeling, and to merit the Lord's favor. And I'm confident that there are some in this room who have either never trusted in Christ and his work on the cross, or who have but are caught up in doing rather than being and receiving. So I want to spend some time asking this question. Am I being perfected by the flesh? Am I falling prey, like the Galatians, to thinking that I need to do something in order to prove my worth or earn my stripes? My prayer is that by the end of our time this morning, we could all joyfully affirm the song lyrics, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. It's been helpful for me as I look at my own heart to first ask, why do I have this pull, this, this draw towards works-based righteousness? I think one element is that we struggle with gifts. Several years ago, Sarah and I went out on a date and we were in the midst of a season of realizing the gap between our spending levels and our income, and we were making some hard but helpful adjustments to spending patterns. And so like any good frugal couple would do, we chose a location for which we had a gift card, exactly. Unfortunately, the place we chose had an unreasonably long wait, and I don't remember if we just didn't make a reservation or if they didn't take them, but the point was we weren't going to wait an hour and a half for our dinner. So we landed on a fiscally responsible pizza place. It wasn't Pizza Hut. And as we're sitting down waiting for our pizza, some complete stranger came up and handed us a gift card. And to this day, I don't remember what exactly was said, but the gist was that they liked seeing a young couple out on a date and they wanted to be a blessing and for us to just enjoy the gift. And so you can imagine how I was feeling. I was appreciative, I was grateful, I was humbled. I was uncomfortable. How could we repay this person? I, I need to do something back for you. I need, to, I need to give this back somehow. Why would you give this to us? Do we look like we're under a tight budget? <laughs> I didn't know what to do with the gift. Friends, we can be like this with our salvation. Instead of having the prideful response that I had in receiving that gift card, our response to God's grace must only be one of humble gratitude. 
We struggle with gifts. We also love to take credit. This past May, as the Los Angeles Lakers were steamrolling their way through the Western Conference playoffs, there was a headline that caught my eye of two former players who had been traded midseason said that should the Lakers go on to win the NBA championship, they wanted their ring. And most experts unanimously agreed that these two players being traded away had actually helped the team, not hurt them. And so it was kind of ironic that the Lakers were now playing so well, and here these two former players wanted credit. And this is not a perfect analogy because they did play the majority of the season for the Lakers, but they clearly were having no role on their playoff success. But as I, as I read this and listened to this, I chuckled. Here are two players who want a piece of something for which they really don't deserve any credit. But other than being significantly less athletically blessed, am I really that different? Don't we often want the token? We want the emblem. We want the plaque. We want the sign. We want the evidence that we were part of something. So we struggle with gifts. We love to take credit. I think we also operate in a tit-for-tat world. This summer, our family was on a road trip. We listened to the audio book, The Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum. There might be some spoilers here, but this book was first published in 1900, and so I think 123 years is a safe enough time uh, to leave you all without excuse for not knowing the plot. Unless you're a young one, then I apologize. But Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Woodman, and the Cowardly Lion all have things they need. And so they, they find their way to the great city, to the wonderful and the great Wizard of Oz, to ask for his help. And listen to what he says. This is to Dorothy after she asked him to send her back to Kansas. You have no right to expect me to send you back to Kansas unless you do something for me in return. In this country, everyone must pay for everything he gets. If you wish me to use my magic power to send you home again, you must do something for me first. Help me, and I will help you. As we listened, my blood boiled a bit. What an ugly, selfish response this was. And how unlike our Heavenly Father, we don't do something for him first before he does something for us. And then it hit me. While we see the ugliness of this response, the irony is that we simultaneously want to operate this way when it comes to our salvation. We love to think of our being saved because God knew that we would be smarter. God knew that we would be more receptive to his gift. God looked ahead and saw the length of our doctrinal statement and we would be more deserving. And therefore, his grace, while it is certainly generous, it is in part merited by what we've done. And I think we love the law because we can touch it. We can get our hands on it. We can, or so we think, choose our own destiny. But when we view the law as a partial means to salvation, it enables us to diminish the gift. It enables us to get our ring. And it enables us to operate in a tit-for-tat, help me and I'll help you model. 
And the problem is that, as Paul says to the Corinthians, a salvation that's accomplished by anything in addition to grace is a gospel contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ hung on a tree. Jesus Christ bearing the curse and rejection of God. If there were any ounce of work we could do to merit our salvation, to justify ourselves, to earn God's favor, Christ died for nothing. If the law was given in order to give us the calculus or the formula, the rules to follow, Christ didn't need to come. The moment that we move away from Christ crucified and its many implications is the moment that we lose the gospel. And in fact, Paul will later write in chapter 5 that the one who would be justified by the law is severed from Christ and has fallen away from grace. I hear you though. Wes, are you saying obedience doesn't matter? It's not what I'm saying, and I hope that no one leaves this room thinking that. But let me stress two things. We can pursue obedience as a source of salvation, or we can obey in response to our salvation. And the difference between those is eternal. There's an author that I've come to appreciate who's done a lot of work on the topic of habits, ordering our time and our days to enable fruitful kingdom living. And he's been asked, with your push towards habits, are you really just teaching a new form of legalism? And this quote has always stuck out with me. He says, talking about habits, If we were to try to pursue habits in order to earn God's love, that would be legalistic. But when we are so enamored with the love of God that we then decide to order every bit of our lives accordingly, that is simply responding to the beauty of our Savior. Habits before love is legalism. But love before habits is the logic of grace. And I think here we could easily substitute the word obedience for the word habit and conclude that when we obey in order to earn God's love, we are pursuing, just like Israel, a justification that comes through the law. But when obedience follows love, or we could say when a relationship exists First, obedience, just like our habits, is the logical and appropriate response. And so we must ask ourselves, am I obeying in order to establish or secure something? Or am I obeying in order to respond to something that's been done? Secondly, I think we can pursue obedience through our own strength. We could say our flesh. Or we can pursue obedience through the power of the Spirit. 
In this very same letter of Galatians, Paul's going to conclude with a call to keep in step with the Spirit. Namely, to be careful that our lives, our ongoing sanctification, that they are attuned to, bound by, and in sync with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And he warns that we can do many of the same things, but out of two different sources of strength the flesh or the Spirit. God is not mocked, writes Paul. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And when we hear sows to the flesh, I think we're right in thinking of maybe those carnal sins. But I also think we need to hear that sowing to the flesh could also mean sowing good deeds out of our own strength. Or sowing them thinking that God will surely be impressed with them, impressed with us more than he is of other people. And sadly, like Israel, the end is corruption. Let me close by just sharing, at least in my own heart, four signs that I've seen that I might be attempting to perfect myself by the flesh. I feel better about myself or more confident of my salvation in those really good days. Does your identity alter based on the type of day or week that you're having? Does your spiritual performance dictate the surety of your salvation? Or is your identity so rooted, so grounded in Christ's love that you know you can't do a single thing to make him love you more? And even on your worst days, he doesn't love you any less. Now, of course, may we all ever be growing in sanctification and Christ-likeness. But if we subtly confuse the order and we think that our standing before God will be based on our progress, that somehow we're easier to love on the days that we've had 30 minutes of uninterrupted prayer and an hour reading the word, we are pursuing righteousness based on works. And we're not resting on his grace. I also might be attempting to perfect myself by the flesh if my confidence lies in what I've done rather than what Christ did. If we're honest with ourselves, we might find confidence in the fact that we have never fill in the blank. Or maybe the fact that we always fill in the blank. Instead of viewing these things that we've done or maybe not done as pure expressions of God's grace, we can quickly add these things to our resume. And how easily our confidence can lie in our church attendance. The way that we dress on a Sunday morning. The frequent flyer miles that we accrue by being in the building every time the doors are open. These are all good things. But the moment that they creep into the realm of merit, we've lost the gospel. Our salvation rests on the merit of Christ and Christ alone. Those things can and should only be done in response to his grace. 
not as a means to obtain them. I might be attempting to perfect myself by the flesh if I'm always comparing myself with others, promoting or demoting myself in the process. If my sense of accomplishment or my sense of being a good Christian increases as I see others around me who clearly were more difficult for Christ to save than I was, that they were really the ones who needed to be saved. Or maybe on the flip side, we look at someone and we say, man, they have it all together. I could never be like that. And we give up hope. In both of those situations, our eyes are on works, either others or our own, and not on Christ. A heart of comparison, a heart of envy, and a heart of pride. These are all born out of a works-based righteousness and contrary to the gospel. And one more. While I was saved by grace, my children will be saved through keeping the law. If my children would just obey the kind and benevolent and gracious laws that I've put before them, if they would just be kind and courteous, good citizens, if they would just remember what I've told them, they'll be saved. It's perhaps been in parenting that I have seen how little of the gospel I can grasp at times. I'm so prone to lean on the law for what only grace can do. So parents, having been saved by grace, will your children be saved through the law? Irony, happening in the opposite way to what is expected. I believe the real irony may lie with those who have been saved by grace, but who now think they'll be perfected by the flesh. May our eyes be on Christ alone, trusting in his death and resurrection alone, and relying on his spirit alone for strength. Let me close this in a word of prayer. And as I do that, those serving the Lord's Supper, musicians, please come forward. Father, we are a weak and needy people who take something like the gift of your law and we use it as a means to stair-step our way into heaven and even do so while acknowledging the work of Christ. Father, forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for our thinking that there is anything we can do to somehow earn your favor. I pray for those in the room this morning that have never trusted Christ I pray that you would grip hearts and the beauty of what he has done for us would lead to repentance and faith. Father, I pray for those of us who have trusted and yet feel prone to this this mindset, Lord. Refresh us with the gospel. That when we see and read the law, we don't think I can do that, but we think Christ did that for me. And Father, out of that grace, may we be a people that love to obey and serve you. Keep us from confusing the order. And we ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen.